You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast. And uh, just to remind you that some good news can come out of uh, trying times. Christian Porter finally resigned from Cabinet. He's still in Parliament. But uh, the... uh, Blind uh, Trust paying his legal fees, defamation f- legal fees, uh, over a million dollars uh, was uh, just a little bit too far a stretch to his, um, uh, what is it, his integrity. <laughs> he he had to resign from Cabinet, so it must have been extreme. Also, the, um, the Tamil family that's been... Uh, called the Bayala family from the uh, Queensland town that they used to live in. Uh, They're now stranded in Western Australia in Perth. But uh, there was a little bit of interesting news. They, all of the family, bar the youngest child, have been given a 12-month temporary visa. So uh, they can't move from where they are because, you know, they're not about to leave their youngest child. But uh, uh, go figure, go figure, the... um, very strange uh, reasoning behind why the whole family can't be held together. She's the fixed foot, the little child. Uh, also, apparently the COVID epidemic in New South Wales is all hunky-dory since the vaccination rate is going up according to the new messaging from the mainstream news. Despite numbers still over 1,000 daily, low vaccination rates in vulnerable communities and maximum pressure on their public health system. There is definitely an undertow of uh, privileging uh, economy over health, but we'll look at that later on in the program. You may also have noticed, especially in Melbourne, where the COVID numbers are rising and the right-wing extremists have been prancing on the street in a potential, potential super spreader event, that the sneaky LMP feds are in election mode with acting Prime Minister Barnaby Joyce Let that sink in. Barnaby Joyce is temporarily in charge of the country. Was given prime space on the ABC, giving a media conference outside Tamworth, spruiking the building of a new dam. While the Treasurer, Joss Frydenberg, announced last night the need to get to zero emissions by 2050 to keep up with the international economic sentiment leading into the Climate Forum coming up in Glasgow. Remember those words? 
in terms of a pre-Christmas election and that the LNP feds have allowed 70%, that's right, 70% of the Northern Territory to be licensed for fracking and that the nuclear industry is sitting on the sidelines hoping to badge itself as green as a gas-led recovery was green. So cynical and self-serving. In their case, words, promises, dates of 2040, 2050 can uh, add up to a smoke and mirrors merchants. So just beware what that the old saying, if walks like a duck, talks like a duck, it is a duck. They just say things that just you have to uh, examine what they actually mean. It's generally not what you think they mean. That's what advertising is all about. Anyway, um, today we're going to uh, listen to some responses to the fascist maraudering in Melbourne this week. It just seemed a little bit too far to stretch to ignore it. Um, And uh, we're going to look at the launch of the Health Before Profits campaign, which is coming up on Sunday at 5pm. I'm not sure if it's this Sunday or the following Sunday. I think it's the following Sunday, but we'll find out. We'll talk to one of their people. A look at the government's secrecy, uh, which is uh, foiling the uh, Freedom of Information uh, Act and, in general, have a discussion uh, here from um, someone who has a finger on the pulse there. And um, we're also uh, going to go back and talk to um, Don, who we haven't heard from for a while, Don Sutherland, and he he chose to talk about the subject of the left against ignorance, which is a fine thing to be talking about right at this moment. And I have to let you know that Kevin was just too weary to rewrite his review of the week after his computer ate it. So anyone who only listens for his dulcet tones, turn off right now. Five million people amidst a war zone are creating a new society based on principles that are near the hearts of many radicals in Australia. Welcome to AANES, the Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria, formerly known as Rojava. Beginning on Thursday the 30th of September at midday to 1pm, Join me, Joseph Toscano, for a 10-part series of conversations with members of a civil diplomacy centre in the city of Kwanzmizlo. Posts from Ennis, the Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria, a flourishing radical experiment in direct democracy in the midst of a war zone. Launching as part of 3CR's Acting Up series on Thursday the 30th of September at midday on 3CR 8 Double five on your AM dial. That sounds interesting, doesn't it? You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and as I said, I uh, sought out uh, someone to have a chat to cogitate about uh, the happenings happening here in Melbourne over the uh, past week with the uh, uh, right-wing fascists uh, 
doing a strut across the, the city and the uh, police in uh, with all their toys, uh, including rubber bullets, um, enjoying the festive occasion. And so I sought out Cam Smith, who runs a, a, a program on 3CR called uh, Ye Na Pasaran, which in, in, involves itself in the uh, dissection of uh, the... Um, ebbs and flows of uh, conspiracy theorists, etc., etc., and um, very popular program on 3CR and uh, in the present period. Anyway, Cam and I had a yarn we about what what just came to pass. Why I wanted to talk to you was about the demonstrations, of course, mm-hmm. and I wanted to get your opinion about how big a role trolls played in what we saw in Melbourne over the last week. I think that they had a little bit to do with it. I think that the original thing that happened was probably quite genuine, at least in terms of the idea that there are people in the construction industry that have these views. And so there were people out the front of the CFMEU who were in the construction industry. They might not necessarily have been in the union, uh, but they were there for that reason. But what we saw on Monday was that uh, after those people were initially there, the call out went out in these telegram groups for the different anti-vaxxer organisations to get down there. And then you saw those people showing up throughout the day. And so I think that, yeah, the proportion of people who at least work in the industry to people who were there for their own reasons sort of shifted throughout the course of Monday. And then, of course, on Monday afternoon, you saw the call-out going out on the anti-vax groups. Everyone come down Tuesday morning. And so I think Tuesday morning, you saw a lot more of those trolls there people who have their own agenda, who I think that if you were to go back and (laughs) probably look at their politics, you'd say these are not people that are normally on the side of a union. Uh, They're not actually normally people who are on the side of, you know, freedom, the sort of freedoms that they purport to be in favour of. Uh, So, yeah, there was definitely more of that element on Tuesday. And then Wednesday, like, I don't know... if you've been to many union rallies, but they don't often uh, end up at the Shrine of Remembrance. No. (laughs) No, that was pretty weird. And the other thing that I found really interesting looking at it on the first day was things like um, across the road from the union office, uh, the CFMEU's office, was an electronic sign. I don't know if anybody actually noticed it, but it was on the back of a truck and it had... uh, uh, things on it that said things like we built this city and stuff like that but they're not inexpensive and mm. so th- there was intent involved that's what I was interested in yeah I think that there's a bit of money involved here because there's this sort of existing anti-vax apparatus that predates the pandemic these groups that are trying to they don't want their kids they they have all of these conspiracy theories and ideas about vaccinations and they they didn't want things like uh primary school teachers and nurses already having to get vaccinated because they have their own ideas about that now that they've seen the pandemic as this opportunity to re- to recruit because there's more of an opportunity to push this idea now that everyone's talking about getting vaccinated they they definitely have mobilized and that they're crowdfunding, like I've 
think the money is coming from people. I don't know if it's necessarily an AstroTurf operation, but there there are some deep pockets that are sort of financing some of this stuff. And yeah, it's not exactly grassroots. Mm. And so the other thing is that uh, there will be people who do hold these views. However, um, and they've always held these views, right? So, uh, for example, they may even homeschool their children and things of that nature because in in um, Victoria, you can't send your child to school unless they've got a, a vaccination record. Mm. So quite clearly they must have already had views of uh, t- taken action, you know, people who actually hold these views. Yeah, so... That's out there, and if you want to separate yourself from society and ha- hold those views, that's fine. But I think uh, the I suppose what I'm getting at what I'm getting at is the um, opportunistic nature of creating a uh, a recruiting basis on something that uh, are, are, are people who aren't necessarily anti-vaxxers, but who have actually other intent. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. So there are people out there, and we've seen them over the course of the pandemic working on these groups. So they see these groups that are sort of open to conspiracy theories, and they're sort of, I would say, naive about political entryism. And they see that as an opportunity. So I'm talking about far right groups now. They see that as a potential recruiting ground because it's not a huge leap to say to these people who are saying i think there are shadowy forces at work uh and that's why things are going the way they're going uh rather than saying well that's capitalism (laughs) you're watching late capitalism at play you can say then well that's the jews doing that and they're very open to that sort of messaging because because they already think that this there's this shadowy cabal working at things and so it's they they see them as an easy recruiting ground and they're probably not wrong there. But they themselves could uh, could be considered to be the shadowy cabal. Well, yes, <laughs> there, there is that. Like they are literally conspiring. Like they, they are not sort of uh, organically coming together and doing this. They they've seen an opportunity and they're they're manipulating them. And so it is sort of funny to see, funny in a very dark way to see people saying you know i'm not going to be manipulated by the mainstream media i'm not going to be manipulated by the scientists but i guess i'm happy to be manipulated by these neo-nazis who are sort of working working me to bring me around to these far right uh point of views yeah there was some discussion about there being some sort of coordinating elements coming from places like germany or america Is, is that credible so there are, with some of these things that we've seen where there are worldwide rallies being called and the ones that we're seeing here are sort of part of that, those are coming out of groups in places like Germany and America. But it's sort of a thing where there is, there's a group in Germany and they're calling a worldwide rally and some posters are made up for Melbourne and people are going out. But it's not like, I don't think there's necessarily people pulling the strings in Germany at talking directly to people in Melbourne and saying, go out and do this. It's a little bit more organic than that. Yeah, yeah. But I also noticed that they've, they've got um, quite well-made signage um, and it's uh, related to... Um, so someone was telling me that someone, a, a nice 
young man in a suit was actually being uh, interviewed by the ABC who was saying that, you know, we have genuine concerns, that type of thing. Um, so that to me says that there's actually quite a, uh, an, a quiet intelligence behind this. Yeah, I think that it's sort of tricky because quite a lot of it is disorganised and it's it's less about organisers and more about influencers who are going out and spreading the message come down to this thing, but they're not necessarily organising anything. So they're not organising marshals or first aid or anything like that. They just sort of say, it's happening, let's all show up. But on the other hand, you do have these groups like Reignite Democracy Australia who have connections to the Liberal Party and have connections to people who have an interest in the state opening up and letting it rip. Uh, so I think that the, it's sort of tricky because on the one hand, it's all very disorganised, but there are probably some people who have an interest in this opening up who are pushing some things in a certain direction. Yeah, well, it's interesting because there was a person who is a MP from uh, the Victorian Parliament who went down there and encouraged them on the first day. Yeah, I think David Limbrick from the uh, Liberal Democrats. Uh, yeah, they've definitely... Some politicians are looking at this and seeing it as an opportunity to, I guess, as a point of difference. If a, sort of, it's, I, th I feel it's political suicide to come out and say you're in favour of these things, but I think that uh, some groups like that and uh, like Craig Kelly, for example, see it as an opportunity to differentiate themselves from the major parties. The other thing is that someone was saying to me something, they saying, oh, what's the point of doing, doing this? You know, what are they doing? And I found it really fascinating because I've been to a lot of union rallies and I've been to a lot of other types of rallies as well and they've been well organised and consistent in a sense. Um, but what was most interesting about this was that they ranged right around the landscape and they went to, of all places, they went to the Westgate Bridge. I don't know why they went there, except that it was an arterial road. Uh, and um, it appears that they were actually trying to create chaos. Yeah, I, I don't know if they like if they set out to create chaos. I think they might be to a certain extent just agents of chaos. Ah, okay. Uh, where, like when they went on the Westgate, if you if you watched the throughout the day, they were just going all over the city, and it seemed to be aimless. And I think it was aimless. And it's just when certain members of the group who were saying, let's go this way, sort of got the sway of the group, then they went that way. And then other people would say, let's go this way, and they would go that way. And so I think it's, it was sort of a little bit up to chance that they ended up on the West Cape. It was just where the mob ah. wanted, to go, wanted to go with. Okay. Because the there, there was a lot of alcohol. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I guess on the other hand, the, I have seen them, the idea of blocking the West Cape sort of had some purchase with them already that the, – Every now and then they'd say, we should all just park our cars on the Westgate. And so I think they understand the idea of, you know, if we shut things down, then we'll get people's attention. But I, th I think there was quite a big dollop of chaos in the recipe on Tuesday. Yeah. The other thing that's interesting is the connection, the quite effective use, whatever the purpose, of uh, electronic uh, systems. 
So using Signal, uh, the the business about the high vis vets best wearing costume, um, and also live streaming. Definitely, the live streams drive these protests. The, there were a lot of people on the live streams over the past few days saying to the live streamers, "You know, I saw you yesterday, and that's why I'm here today." So I think that definitely does drive it. Their Telegram groups are very active, and they've seen a huge amount of growth over the past few days. On the other hand, they, the Telegram groups are sort of uh, open to a bit of jamming, I suppose, where uh, over the past day or so, they've been getting spammed quite hard by just by technological things. Uh, and the, it's filled it up so much that uh, they find it difficult to use it to coordinate. Ah, right. So they, they themselves are being um, uh, undermined. Yes. So uh, that's probably a good thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, also, I mean, I, I think the whole event, ha, these events have actually exhausted uh, the Victorian Melbourne population. Most people I have spoken to have felt exhausted by it all. <laughs> um, and then when the um, earthquake happened, which was, you know, minor, but actually a little bit like, you know, the four uh, horsewomen's coming. It was all pretty weird. I I did feel a bit like that. Thankfully, it seems to today seems to have been a bit of a fizzer, as was yesterday uh, on Friday. Uh, they didn't really seem to be able to find anyone to protest with. Well, if if everybody got drunk the first day, they were going to be sleeping it off, and then it goes to the um, big football match, which of course then leads people to not. Um, you know, like they've got more important things to do than having protests of this sort, right? Exactly. The footy's on. <laughs> the footy's on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but it uh, it is very peculiar. And, it, and one of the things that's uh, quite disturbing is the unleashing of the new police um, equipment. That was pretty strange too. Oh, it's very disturbing. I saw, saw um video of the Soggies out the other day. The other day. Uh, in full camo, so they weren't exactly blending into the urban landscape. But I'm not sure why an elite counter-terrorism unit needed to be deployed to the streets of Melbourne to deal deal with just random gronks in the street. Like, someone walking up and mouthing off didn't need the the best of the best uh, to, to be taking them down. So I, it might have been a bit of a all hands on deck, but it struck me as quite odd. And I think the problem is that uh, now that they've gotten to use their toys, they're probably going to want to use them on more worthy causes as well. Uh, because there was so much footage of uh, overhead of the city, the city's actually really big, right? And so with this uh, type of demonstration where they, well, whatever you want to call it, ranging around the place, because most of them were obviously relatively fit. Um, most of them were fit young men, really. Uh, there were some women, not a lot, um, but they were walking really fast. It's, um, and so they, it was made clear that actually uh, gen usual police tactics aren't actually going to work on a group like this. No, although, I mean, some of the police tactics that they deployed didn't seem to be that sensible. Like when they were walking back from the Westgate and they blocked off the road, 
and I guess that's the normal sort of police tactic. We'll block the road, and no one will be. Well, they well, walked they, around they, them. They just walked around them, and we saw last Saturday as well when they were in uh, the Barkers Road Gorge, and sort of kettled in. Well, <laughs> it was quite an innovative uh, technique they used of just running through the police. Mm. I think also be- going back to that idea of them being agents of chaos, because you don't know where they're going to go. They had no destination. So they had no way of saying, all right, we'll block off these streets. They could go down any street. It didn't matter. No, that's right. And and it's sort of like they were being lads. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it, the fact that there was so much alcohol, it, it just seems so strange to me that it, it, it was planned. You know, it's like an alcohol picnic. <laughs> <laughs> it was... It was a little strange that they had so much booze handy. Yeah, how did that happen? I was told today that actually the crowd that uh, came to the uh, CFMEU office on that first day, that it took about four hours before the police turned up and that they were allowing these people to come in with slabs of beer. Yeah, and that struck me as a little odd too that a... I feel like if it had been perhaps something besides a union office, they might have been a little quicker <laughs> to yeah. respond to a large crowd sort of gathered around it with hostile intent. I mean, you know, I don't know. It just seems odd. Mm. That's, I mean, that was a factual observation given to me about what happened on that day. Yeah, I think – I wonder if, if the um, – and the other thing that was interesting was that on Channel Seven they would they continually referred back to Matthew Guy for his comments. Mm. And astute comments they were as well. That uh, if he was premier, yeah, uh, he he just wouldn't have uh, allowed it to happen. Yeah. Well, that's right. <laughs> thanks for thanks for the insights, Matt. Yeah. <laughs> which which also make leads one to believe that there's you know. Um, there are some people who hold certain views. And, and the thing that's really interesting about this vaccin- vaccination thing is that nobody's telling people they have to be vaccinated. You just not, aren't going to get any work. Mm. <laughs> I, mean, you, I mean, if you hold that view really strenuously, then you won't get vaccinated, right? Yeah. So that's fine. There are, there are other career paths out there. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if you hold that, it's more important than... The other thing, then you have to change your... I mean, it's like any life choice, isn't it? Mm. And uh, other industries have already been through this. Uh, there are industries where, you know, you need to get... be vaccinated to work in them, and they have got along with it fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, th- well there was one other thing, aspect to this, was that it was clear that um, the... Um, the reason why I brought up the trolls at the beginning was that there were fake, there was a series of fake Twitters that and um, the use of uh, union uh, insignia, including the um, the Australian Nursing and Midwifery um, Federation's insignia to encourage people to come to this demonstration originally, which is pretty outrageous. The nurses were really ropeable. And there was also the same kind of tactic tried on much earlier, a couple of months ago, not in Melbourne in particular, but with uh, the TWU members, truckies, mm. they, and they had a, um, they tried to get people together, but, you know, three trucks turned up 
And um, so that was a fizzer. And apparently they've also tried to target uh, healthcare workers. And obviously they're too busy to take that on board. I think there are these sort of careers that hold a special place in their imagination. So the the, the, truck, the truckies and the tradies and I think next it might be the farmers, you know, will rise up with us because these are like the Aussie jobs and so the Aussies will rise up with us. I think that's how they sort of conceive of these people, even if they don't necessarily know any of them. Yesterday they were calling on the nurses and the teachers to come out again as well. And it's like, Nurses and teachers are not interested in this. They uh, they want to be at work without having to worry about catching the coronavirus. Uh, yeah, that's the key. We're in a pandemic. And uh, yes, indeed, we are in a pandemic. And uh, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. And uh, that was me having a chat with uh, my fellow programmer at 3CR, um, Cam Smith from uh, Yeah Na pa- pass around and if you want to catch the program it's on Thursdays at 4:30 p.m. and uh, I uh, last night there were um there was uh, the socialist alternative <coughs> excuse me had a forum a- around the um left response to the this uh fascist uh, uh um attack uh, marauding on our streets uh, and there have been quite a lot of forums over the last week about this led by CAF which is uh, the coalition against racism and fascism and if you want to uh, become more involved in the anti-fascist uh uh pushback, you should go to the CAF uh, website, Socialist Alternative, or the Socialist Campaign uh, in the upcoming elections. They're all available on online. And I took a little excerpt from uh, someone's response in the discussion. It was just so beautifully framed. I just thought you'd like to hear how cross, how angry this outrageous marauding has uh, been felt by people. Yeah, what Viv said about we need to stand up and tell people who these fascists are is absolutely right. Because on Monday, watching that live stream, I felt a sickness in my stomach that I remember. I remember that from 1993 in East London when Derek Beacon, a Nazi, got elected to to the council there. By 1994, eight months later, that bastard was gone. He lost his seat. And he did so not because people pandered to the so-called legitimate concerns of people who were following the fascists. He went because people stood up and said, these people are fascists. And what Viv and Ryan and other people said, that's what we've got to say about who these who these people are. That um, all those people who say I've got legitimate concerns, I've got to be made to understand that they are promoting and building fascism. And there's two ways we do that. One is calling out who they are. It is telling everyone that this. You start with this talk of freedom. You start with choice, and we end up at Auschwitz. That's the first way. And secondly, as soon as we can, we get on the streets, not to fight with them on equal numbers. We need to mobilise thousands and thousands and thousands. And that means carrying arguments in our union branches. Because John Tyndall, the leader of the National Front in the 70s in Britain, said this. He said, I believe our great marches with drums and flags and banners have a hypnotic effect on the public, an immense effect in solidifying the allegiance of our followers so that their enthusiasm can be sustained. 
They didn't feel like that in 1977 in Lewisham when they were bashed off the streets by 10,000 people. They didn't feel like that in 1993 when 60,000 of them smashed them off the streets in South East London. We have to do those two things and there's an urgency to us doing that as soon as we can. It starts by not pandering and saying these people have got legitimate concerns. As the Health Workers Union said, they want to fight to overwhelm the health system. That's the way that we point out what they're about. And the way when we smash them on the streets is how we stop those sad individuals looking for looking for politics and looking for fascists. That's how we break them from fascism. Hi, I'm Stuart. Hi, I'm Marita. We are the Orb Weavers, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital radio. And streaming at 3cr.org.au. Health Before Profits is a campaign to oppose the Liberal Party's reckless drive to reopen which threatens the health and safety of Australia's poor, working class and Indigenous communities. We demand an immediate return to a zero COVID elimination strategy before it's too late. Join us for online forums, activism and campaigns. To find out more, follow Health Before Profits Vic on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Health Before Profits is a 3CR supporter. And you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and we've got Bella from that campaign, Health Before Profits. G'day, Bella. Are you there? Hello, Welcome Bella. Good to be here. Yeah, yeah. Fabulous. Thanks for uh, getting up in the morning on this uh, grand final day. I'm sure that was really <laughs> in the centre of your mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> Tell our listeners about what's going on. Yeah, so pretty much, um, yeah, the last week, uh, especially this week, has been some, yeah, pretty, uh, you know, uh, yeah, uh, quite uh, drastic developments in, um, you know, the, yeah, um, Andrew's government and the kind of capitulation, I really think, to the, um, you know, Liberal Party's drive to, you know, recklessly reopen um, the economy and put uh, profits before health, really, Um yeah, like I think that uh, the yeah Andrew's government uh, the recent reopening kind of map um, that was announced is a really dangerous plan. I think that it's you know trying to normalise a level of infection and you know hospitalisation and deaths in Australia that yeah quite frankly we haven't seen, but uh, we've you know witnessed around the globe uh, the absolute you know carnage that you know kind of ensues uh, as this virus is let rip through communities. Um, and yeah, I think that you know. We really do um, actually need to, you know, build a fight of social solidarity with healthcare workers, you know, in our unions, uh, in our workplaces, uh, everywhere to actually oppose this reckless drive to reopen and really oppose, you know, the, um, yeah, kind of push for, you know, businesses to reopen, for profits to flow, because really, like, the bodies will pile high and... um, yeah, I think that, you know, the healthcare systems will be absolutely overwhelmed. Uh, there will be mass deaths and, yeah, I don't think anyone uh, wants to see that really. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? The uh, the way, uh, for example, the way um, 
the National Cabinet, which is in camera, has obviously devised some sort of uh, overall strategy that uh, re- underlined by the concept of living with COVID. Uh, but it's not matched with uh, in uh, large amounts of money uh, being advertised going into public health. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I really think it does. Yeah, actually, it's just quite a testament to, um, yeah, the interests of, you know, uh, yeah, big business, the interest of, you know, um, yeah, our politicians and stuff. I mean, you know, the healthcare system has been defunded for years and years, actually, before this pandemic, um, you know, even started. Um, and I think, yeah, even, you know, like after the um first wave kind of, you know, ripped through Melbourne and stuff in the 2020 lockdown. Um, there was, you know, a period of time where um, we should have actually been, uh, you know, putting money to the healthcare system. We should have been building up, you know, the healthcare system stronger and stronger. Um, and that actually didn't happen. Um, and, you know, quite the contrary, actually, you know, health and hospital services are, um, you know, the, the most stretched, really, that they've actually ever been. Um and, yeah, there has been no expansion to healthcare, no expansion to, you know, any of these uh, mechanisms that we, I think, drastically, drastically need to, you know, boost and expand. Um, yeah, so it's, it's quite, uh, yeah, appalling, but uh, not necessarily surprising, I think. Yeah, I, I, it, as some, uh, actually a healthcare worker I was speaking to the other day said, I was saying exactly what you were saying, that uh, in actual fact, it's amazing to me that people don't seem to realise how hard the uh, health workers are, you know, and how stressful and anxiety uh, creating this whole situation Mm. really is, like if you're up close to it. Uh, And she said to me, oh, well, they just don't care. Like she, they, they can talk yeah. fine words, but they just don't care. And it's quite interesting what you're saying. What you're really talking about is a proper solidarity response mm. as opposed to privileging the economy. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I think, you know, um, yeah, we, uh, yeah, I kind of, you know, work, um, you know, with a lot of, yeah, healthcare workers um, in, you know, activist spaces and stuff who, yeah, really do echo kind of, yeah, the sentiments of, of the healthcare worker that, yeah, you mentioned. Um, yeah, it's uh, actually just, yeah, uh, you know, the, the kind of whole, you know, history of, I think, the virus really shows that, um, you know, adopting this whole thing of, you know, returning to, yeah, business as usual uh, actually, in fact, means, you know, uh, letting, yeah, the bodies uh, pile high, or as Boris Johnson or whoever said, um, you know, and actually, yeah, letting, um, yeah, you know, uh, people die, uh, letting this virus rip if it means that the economy can, you know, continue to, um, yeah, somehow, you know, uh, yeah, reopen and, you know, profits flow and stuff for the few, you know, at the at the upper echelons of society who benefit from it, uh, but, yeah, at the expense and detriment to, um, yeah, you know, healthcare workers, to working class as a whole, to uh, students uh, in schools who, you know, that's a massive area that uh, um, the Andrews government wants to, yeah, reopen, I think, uh, ahead of, yeah, VCE examinations or something, and, uh, yeah, that is absolutely going to be a disaster, <laughs> um, you know, with the kind of, yeah, you know, uh, all, you know, lack of, like, air filters at school, you know, the, um, yeah, every everything is essentially, yeah, being, yeah, decided uh, completely, you know, without consideration for people's health. And I think that, uh, 
we actually have, you know, a responsibility as, yeah, um, everyone, you know, on the left, but I think as, you know, people more broadly and, you know, the as workers, as, you know, unionists and stuff, to actually build up a fight, a sustained fight that actually says, no, we actually have to put health before profits. Um, and so that's actually, yeah, like why we um, set up this, uh, yeah, campaign nationwide, but we also, uh, of course, have, you know, statewide kind of divisions because of the various different, I guess, situations and stuff um, that various different states are in. Um, and so, yeah, like I think, yeah, I just would really, really recommend, I guess, like anyone listening right now uh, to, yeah, actually get involved with health before profits because, yeah, I think that, um, you know, if you want to yeah, be a part of a, an actual movement of social solidarity, if you want to be a part of, of the fight to, you know, put human lives before profit, uh, this is absolutely the campaign that you must join. And we actually um, have an organising meeting tomorrow night at 6pm on uh, Zoom. Uh, if you just go to our, like, Facebook event, um, our Facebook page, sorry, Health Before Profits, uh, Vic, it'll be advertised there. And, like, yeah, I mean, it would be awesome to just, you know, have a really, really huge, uh, yeah, movement, uh, you know, across, yeah, workplaces, students, you know, we have a lot of uh, teachers in the um, AEU that are, yeah, passing great motions in their union, building up great fights, um, you know, to, yeah, stop the reckless drive to reopen, I think, all of these, you know, um, yeah, people should really get involved in this campaign because I think it's, uh, yeah, it's absolutely a show of, you know, what social solidarity actually looks like. Thanks, Bella. I'll be there. Yeah, awesome. Cool. Uh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah, and I just wanted to give it also a quick shout-out to um, another campaign uh, called, yeah, Campaign Against Racism and Fascism. Um, I think that this week, uh, you know, if you live in Melbourne, you may have, you know, been, uh, yeah, kind of consumed with, you know, hearing sirens. Uh, if you're anywhere near the city, hearing sirens kind of, you know, uh, blaring all day and, uh, yeah, hearing on the news and stuff that there are, yeah, thousands of, yeah, um, you know, anti-vaxxers and stuff, you know, anti-lockdowners uh, uh, mobilising on the streets. Um, and not to say that, you know, every single one of those people are kind of hardened fascists or anything, but... Um, I think that there has been some prominent far-right and fascist figures like Avi Yemeni um, on the streets trying to kind of cohere more of a um, hardened, I guess, fascist um, section within the movement. Um, and, yeah, so that has been yeah going on on the street. And uh, I think, you know, uh, yeah, it is yeah pretty shocking to see. Um, but, yeah, the campaign against racism and fascism, which, uh, yeah, was established in 2015 just um, to, yeah, actually kick the, um, yeah, far right off the streets and the, I think it was the, like, reclaim um, Australia wa- movement. You you always lose in Melbourne. Pardon? They always lose in Melbourne. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we, uh, you know, we could kick them off the streets in 2015 and, uh you know, we, uh, yeah, they had to, I think, you know, go into the mountains and hold their rallies pretty pretty much, um, yeah, isolated from the rest of society as, as they should. Um, but, yeah, so, you know, they have, yeah, there has been a resurgence uh, of them uh, with throughout this kind of pandemic and the campaign against racism and fascism once again is, you know, pushing back uh, and, you know, um, yeah, really leading the fight to, yeah, stand for, you know, like, 
health, safety, social solidarity, opposing the far right. So, yeah, that is a separate campaign to health before profits, but I think rightly should be shouted out in anyone. Who yeah. It, 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 what, uh, it, they've got a great slogan, which is pro-vax, pro-union, anti-fascist. Yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. it really does encapsulate, like, the... Um, yeah, really what, yeah, this yeah campaign is about. Like, you know, we have so many staunch unionists, like, actually leading, you know, the charge in the campaign against racism and fascism to actually really reclaim, like, the, you know, left-wing traditions that, you know, have really, uh, yeah, been prominent throughout union movements, especially in Australia, you know? Like, we have such a, a brilliant, like, history of, you know, um, militant trade unionism, and that should be, you know... The, the history and that should be the kind of, um, yeah, thing that is out, you know, uh, on the streets and that, you know, unions are known for, you know, um, not this kind of reactionary anti, anti-vaxxer, anti-lockdown kind of mobilisation. With a fascist undertow. Yeah, absolutely, definitely. Thanks for talking to us this morning, Bella. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Indigenous people in Australia and the Pacific have borne the brunt of nuclear testing. And this was not done unconsciously. We found documents in the British archives saying that, yes, there is uh, certain hazards, but only to primitive peoples, those that don't wear clothes and don't wash, unlike us British. So the sort of racism inherent in this whole operation was known and understood from the beginning that these were the casualties of a larger imperial policy and that they were able to bear the brunt because there were very small populations and didn't have much political voice. And as we fast forward to today, we see that same thing. 3CR, keeping you informed about Australia's nuclear past and present. At such a time, it's important to have a voice like 3CR, steady, constant, sane and committed to a nuclear-free Australia. And you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and uh, we're going to move on to this other subject that surfaced this week which was that uh, in South Australia without any debate a private members bill was passed yesterday into legislation to cut the powers to investigate um, for, for to investigate of the Anti-Corruption Commission. Now this is after two pollies were sent for prosecution so obviously it had some teeth and uh, it was fascinating to note that private uh, members bills which uh, are generally hot air uh, or building or to raise awareness of a of a uh, something that's important uh, but generally are, are not don't go anywhere effectively they're sort of uh, but all of a sudden, here's this private members' bill, which uh, at, at both sides of parliament, or all parts, all no, there was no no discussion, no discussion at all, pro or, or against. It was just passed. Uh, the silence was deafening. Anyway, um, that just is part of the tone that we are in at the moment in Australia. This uh, very. Uh, uh, where, where the politicians uh, decide on their own report card, effectively, in a, in a democracy. And uh, last week there was a really interesting... There's this really interesting organisation called the Centre for Public Integrity, and it puts on these really... Inter- I find them fascinating. Anyway, there's this fantastic guy called Geoffrey Watson. He's SC. He's uh, also a... Um, a um, 
one of the uh, directors of the uh, Centre of Public Integrity or on their board, you know, one of their instigators. And um, he had this to say about, it was about freedom of um, information, the Freedom of Information Act, which uh, came into being during, uh, because of uh, Gough Whitlam's government, in fact, that uh, they should actually be, um, uh, uh, you know, Politicians shouldn't just be allowed to get away with what they do, um, which is something that uh, the federal LMP is, you know, it's definitely a Pandora's box, which uh, they're trying to put all, you know, shut the lid on. And uh, anyway, this is a fantastic piece I found uh, where he describes why and how and when Australia lost the plot and who can't handle the truth, the secrecy of government information and the dangers for democracy. So let's have a hear from uh, Geoffrey Watson. In 1972, Labor went to the election with a promise that they would introduce FOA legislation. They, they won, but couldn't get it through the Senate. But it was not a party political issue. In 1978, Senator Durack introduced it into the federal parliament again, and he said the reasons we need this and what it does, they're simple. Well, maybe not so simple because four years later, it passed into law. It took four years to get through the system. And when you have a look at what they did in 1982, it's just incredibly admirable. It was well ahead of its time. Bear this in mind. Other Westminster systems did not have this kind of legislation. UK's only got it relatively recently. Blair brought it in. Now, our 1982 Act had explicit objects. It said that the Australian community has a right to access this information, that the purpose behind the legislation was to enhance representative democracy, encourage public participation, and to promote better informed decision-making. It was hoped... These are in the objects of the Act. They're still there today, that it would increase scrutiny, discussion, comment and review of government actions. And it said that the paperwork needs to be kept because that is a national resource. Oh, dear me. Noble sentiments. Where did it go so wrong? You know, back in the day, the coalition, the Liberal Party, was so emphatically in favour of freedom to information of this kind, that one of the leading cases, 1985 it was, wanted that documents relied upon Treasury in drawing up the budget. They wanted to see it so that they could expose government thinking and open it up to all of us. The person who commenced that suit was the then Deputy Leader of the Opposition, John Howard. Anyway, since 1978 and until now, openness and transparency in decision-making has always been understood to be a foundation, a cornerstone, if you like, of good government. And, I mean, I don't need to rave on about this. The reasons for that are obvious in an open, liberal democracy. The more people know, the better when they're coming to select governments and when they're coming to select the parliamentarians. And part of that is why decisions have been made. Nobody could honestly argue to the contrary. And that's part of the problem. Those who seek to defeat our access to information 
never do so by addressing the arguments honestly. They do so by other means. They work inside the system. By the way, I'm repeatedly asked by people who are disappointed by the system, what can be done to improve the legislative framework? And they're always surprised by my answer because I say, oh, nothing. The legislative framework is fine. It was properly designed in 1982, and if it was properly applied, it would work well today. Our problem is not with the legislative framework. Our problem is, is with the people who on a day-to-day basis are seeking to avoid and evade compliance with that framework. The problem lies with our politicians and to some extent by politically motivated bureaucrats. The ethos of the freedom of information legislation has been destroyed. The rules are consistently, routinely broken and ignored. Paul went through some of this. I'm sorry if it's repetitive, but now you lodge an application and what you meet is obstruction. Did you know that the information commissioner had been created, brought in to speed up the process and to make it cheaper? It's had exactly the opposite because now the government does this. They respond by giving you reams of redacted pages the applicant goes to the information commissioner and, as Paul said, it can sit there for two years. And once you get it out of there, if the government gets an adverse result, they've got an automatic right of appeal to the AAT and they do it. Now, at this stage, you can be involved in pretty difficult legal arguments and there's expense, but the delay is the killer. A journalist like Paul is trying to get this information out in respect of an issue which is presently demanding. Let an issue run past for two years, three years. It's no longer of interest. Yesterday, I I can't talk about a current case in which I'm involved. That would be inappropriate. But I can tell you what the lawyer said to me because I thought it was right. I told him about today's webinar and he said, strangely enough, the Freedom of Information Act is now being used as a tool to withhold access to information. I hadn't thought of that before, but he's quite right. So just bear this in mind. You'll see this all the time in the criminal courts. False legal arguments, expense and delay. Delay is a big thing. They're all implements in the toolkit of whom? Of the unmeritorious litigant. Now, I want to talk to you about something dear to my heart. I want to identify who killed transparency and I'm going to give you the date they killed it. We know the date. And that's why I call this paper buried at sea. We know that things changed on Friday, 8 November 2013. It happened at a media briefing, which had been called by the then Immigration Minister, Scott Morrison. The purpose of the briefing was to address issues from the policy known as Operation Sovereign Borders. 63 human beings have been rescued from a sinking boat. Nobody knew what happened to them. 
We didn't even know if they were still alive, if they had been rescued. People wanted to know. Under pressure, a briefing was arranged with the press. A member of the press on that day asked a simple question. What's become of that boat of asylum seekers? The response to that question was this. The press was told no comment whatsoever would be made because it was a secret. And why was it a secret? The press was told, and by extension, this is telling all of us, it's secret because it involved, quote, on water matters. I remember that. It ran through my mind. Since when has that been an excuse for secrecy? When was that invented? It's not national security. It's not an excuse for anything. And yet you'll recall that from that day, that was a standard Stonewall response. Week in, week out, month in, month out, it went for over a year. Once the government did that and got away with it, they found it addictive. They got a taste for it. It's got an alluring quality, you know, secrecy. So there we are. 8th of November 2013, the day the transparency died. It was murdered live on television by the Abbott government. And as my paper's title suggests, it died on water. Its remains are buried at sea. I'm just going to tell you something about Paul Farrell in this context. If you do any research in this area, you'll turn out that he was one of the original people who got into the government about this, and he used the Freedom of Information legislation to do it. There's a great story written by Paul back in 2017. Apparently, he owned a shaver at that part of his life, and he tells the story about how he got stonewalled and destroyed by a series of, quite frankly, specious arguments defying transparency. Anyway, it's all been downhill since 2013. I don't want to limit what I've got to say, the FOI Act. That's one, one very obvious area where it's applied. But it's gone far more generally than that. I, I like this one, the Auditor General. You've got to remember that the Aud Office of the Auditor General has now become probably the single most important federal accountability agency. Yeah, sure, we should have a federal ICAC. We don't. That's another matter. But what we do have is the Auditor General who's done a sterling job. We know about Leppington Triangle, sports rorts, car park rorts because of the Auditor General. As Paul mentioned, I'm sorry, I think it was Catherine, but as was mentioned, the government's response to that has been negative. At first, they proposed cutting back the Auditor General's budget. In the end, they resolved to increase it, but in accordance with inflation, that in effect really means that the funding was cut. I gave evidence at the Senate inquiry about that, and I listened to the evidence from the Auditor General's office on the issue about how they need to dedicate their resources by selective processes because they do not have enough money. There's other things. They're allied to this. Remember I told you that in the objects of the Freedom of Information Act 
itself. It said we've got to keep the documents because they're a, quote, national resource, unquote. By underfunding the bodies which look after that national resource, I've got in my paper sort of bad joke. Maybe the government's proposing they'll give us access to those records so that we can use them as compost on our gardens. The documents are literally rotting away. And I know this actually at a personal level. I've had a son who's a PhD candidate at the ANU, a scholar seeking access to those documents, now has to wait 18 months or longer to get access to them. Try and tell that to a master's student. Doctorate students are trying to get their work done in, a year, in three years. It's just not fair. Now, it seems to me that the only people who are pursuing the Freedom of Information Act applications could be labelled as the determined and the foolhardy. I include you in that, Paul. But I'm going to talk now about Senator Rex Patrick. I don't know whether we've got any South Australians listening, but I do know this much. There's a lot of people listening to this. Anybody, any of you who know a South Australian, get them to vote for Senator Patrick at the next election. He's been doing a great job. He's a thorn in the flesh of the government and he's been doing it by way of the Freedom of Information Act. I got in touch with him or he got in touch with me. We found each other somehow, not Tinder. Uh, we got in touch somehow and so I looked at a few matters for him and I remember the first time I rang the Australian government solicitor and said, look, I'm ringing on behalf of Senator Patrick about his FOI application, and they said, you're going to be, have to be a lot more specific than that. He's been a thorn in their flesh. I rang him up and said I was going to deliver this webinar. I said, what do you think about transparency in the federal government? Do you think it's any coincidence that we shortly thereafter had an earthquake in Victoria? His was not a generally positive review. And he gave me around about 15 examples. I've just plucked two out. I like them. There are so many more I could have used. The first one is the Hawkeye debacle. In 2018, in response to an Auditor-General report, Christian Porter did something quite remarkable. As the Attorney-General, he unleashed his power to suppress an Auditor-General's report. It related to the purchase by the federal government of a new combat vehicle fleet called the Hawkeye. They were manufactured by the multinational arms giant, Talus. The, what had happened was the Auditor-General had investigated, made some thoroughly adverse findings. The government didn't want that to come to light, and so they suppressed it. What's more, Talus joined in. Senator, Senator Patrick wasn't taking no for an answer. He pursued it, the base level, the information commissioner, and then through to the AAT. Well, it turns out that the Attorney-General was legally speaking wrong and Senator Patrick, a former sub-mariner, by the way, was legally right. But by the time those documents emerged, the issue was years old. Another case study from Senator Patrick is one to which Catherine referred. When is a cabinet not a cabinet? As you know the story, the federal government was able to put a stamp of secrecy over all the deliberations of the federal 
national cabinet, as it was described. It's not a cabinet at all. As you would know, Justice White in the AAT ruled that those arguments were all legally unsound and rejected it. Again, Attorney General Porter, wrong. Senator Patrick, right. It all turned out to be just an attempt to create a shroud of secrecy over something which shouldn't be secret at all. I might say on Monday I'm going to give some evidence of the Senate investigation into legislation which proposes, in effect, to overturn the effect of that judgment. I'll do what I can on behalf of all Australians who want to know about this. I'll just mention, just in passing, one of my favourites that Senator Patrick told me about is his long and still ongoing fight to get access to uh, information about our arrangements with French authorities in creating submarines. That one's been resisted fiercely. And what's more, you might find it curious now, things weren't always anti-French. The federal government got its own team of lawyers but also paid for a team of lawyers to represent the French government in resisting Senator Patrick's applications. Now, I want to finish what I've got to say with a really, really sour note, sour note upon which to end. Gee, I'd hate you to leave this webinar in a positive frame of mind. I just want to remind you about this. While we are here, think about what's going on to Bernard Collieri. The cases involving Witness K and Witness J have come and gone, but think about what that involved. I was a child during the Cold War. I was taught by the nuns about the evils of totalitarian regimes. They hated those atheistic, communistic Ruskies. But I heard the stories, and I can tell you I was deeply fascinated, as schoolboys are, just at the cruelty of those people. And the idea that they could think it appropriate to conduct secret trials, pitting the resources of the state against an individual, deliberately concealing from the individual being charged the evidence, the, uh, the allegations, and keeping secret from the public the deliberations and even the result. Uh, civilised countries don't do that. Well, that's going on in Canberra as we speak. I'm not blaming the lawyers or the judges involved. They're quite literally required to follow the letter of the law. I don't even blame the law generally because the common law would have protected against this and prevented it from occurring. I blame the legislators who overrode the common law protections that we all inherited and have allowed this to occur. And I really blame those centrally involved in this prosecution. The indictment was presented to the direction of the former Attorney General Christian Porter, a man whose judgment has been questioned from time to time. Quite frankly, they should all be ashamed. You know... Sometimes good things come from bad things. I just wonder whether we can't turn this around and look at Bernard Collieri, Witness K, Witness J, and start asking ourselves larger questions about what happened to our country that we ever allowed this to occur. Let's make sure it never happens again. Thank you.
Hey y'all, this is Natalie from Blue King Brown and you're listening to 3CR. Support community radio and your local music scene. Subscribe now. And you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. I told you he was great to listen to. Uh, G'day, Don, how are you? Hello, Annie, and g'day to all of your listeners. Yeah, that Jeffrey Watson, what an interesting fellow. Um, you know, they asked him a question. One of the questioners was, uh, was uh, what do we do about it all? You know, I know it's a general question. And, he's, and his one-line answer was, get better politicians. Oh, right. Well, I think that falls short of the mark, actually. <laughs> well, you think that uh, we should be looking more at uh, the left working against ignorance. I think, um, uh, yes, and I think we uh, uh, a better answer would be to is change the whole dynamic mm. of democracy in a society because one of the crises in our society at the moment is the crisis in parliamentary democracy, which does not mean to say that we should be opposed to parliamentary democracy because it's based on something that's very precious, which is called universal suffrage. But getting better politicians should be, uh, I think, uh, lower-level priority relative to improving uh, and winning democratic, stronger democratic influence through all dimensions of life. Yeah, yeah, I and agree. And not being dependent upon politicians. Yeah, yeah, this top-down stuff, it's a bit like trickle-down economics, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can win. I've seen lots of people succeed in getting a better politician into Parliament. Only once they are bumped into Parliament, to use an old Australian song, the title of an old Australian song, uh, they turn out to be not better for very long. (laughs) Um, So, um, uh, yeah, I'm all for uh, the defence of parliamentary democracy, but even more strongly for working out its limitations so that a more democratic uh, structure of decision-making in the society that puts more power into the hands of the majority of the population, who are working people, is the way to go. It was interesting... I I see it slightly differently to that. Yeah. Um, yeah, And that bears upon one of the things we're going to talk about today, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Proceed. Yeah. Well, just just about like everyone in Melbourne and in other parts of the country... I've been trying to work out just what the hell's been going on in terms of the construction industry and the protests that we've seen that started um, over a week ago, yesterday, a week ago, approximately, maybe maybe it was uh, uh, eight or nine days rather than seven. Anyway, uh, and of course, I'm talking about the thuggery, the riotous thuggery that that went on this week. Uh, and its origins the week before. I want to be a little. I want to sort of sound a word of caution because mainly I've been watching from afar, and uh, I have been able to talk to some people who are closer to the action than I've been, because I've been one of the people who believes in the science and has been staying home. Yeah, yeah, that. yeah, yeah. That's right. And also, uh, but but uh, you shouldn't underestimate the. Uh, purpose and the power of massaging the message that is done through that viewing that you were involved in well i think that i think that's right that we we like i'm active in the living incomes for everyone campaign and 
uh, we we and, and connected to a lot of other um, progressive and socialist activities, thinking and action, uh, other deeds and so on. And I've been trying to work. Well, what are the meaning of these events for those who are in the left, uh, and especially the socialist left? What does what does it mean, uh, especially this week's actions, uh, for the future of mindfully militant unionism that we we have not had enough of? Um, is it going to deplete it, or is it going to stimulate an escalated? improved focus upon it. Um, I think the background to all this is worth thinking about because there is a contextual situation that produces the behaviour, the thuggery that we've seen this week. Well, there was an awful lot of grog involved there. There was an awful lot of grog, Don. Uh, uh, Was there a lot of grog involved? Yeah, yeah. There was... uh, It was uh, uh, a wash with it on the... um, the Monday and Tuesday, with the day that they went to the um, uh, Westgate Bridge, it, it was quite, it was a very well, con- Tuesday, Tuesday and Wednesday. Yeah, yeah. some of the some of the TV images showed that actually. It showed that I don't know how it washed, but it showed a certain amount of it anyway. That's yeah, slabs true. of beer we're talking, rub and coke. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, I think it's. I mean, what what is it that gives rise to that sort of form of protest, which is the very opposite? to what Melbourne is really used to and familiar of and is probably the leading, uh, the city that is the leading exponent of in Australia. It's the opposite. Well, you, it's interesting. I went, I listened to, uh, a, a, there's a couple of things um, that were expressed at a Socialist Alternative uh, webinar last night, which is uh, really hit home to me, which were that, uh, one, that this uh, shows that the right wing uh, fascists have uh, will be gleeful because they got some traction with the working class because they want to represent themselves as members of the working class when in actual fact they are aligned with the interests of the financial class, uh, which is... I think, that's, I think that overall is, is fair enough. Mm. You see, this is all a product of um, what I call the age of crisis, that we our modern times are really an age of crisis. And there's, there are six probably overarching crises that intersect with each other. I'm not going to go into the great detail of them, but just list them off. Of course, we have an ecological crisis, which is highlighted by climate heating. We have a public health crisis. We have regular crises and continuing instability in between in how the economy works. Uh, we have, as, as we briefly discussed, a crisis in parliamentary democracy. Uh, and now we have uh, escalating, because of the United States' uh, government's requirements, the prospect of a crisis of peace in the Pacific. And finally, intersecting with all of these, there is actually a human relations crises. And when I look at the last few days in particular, keeping in mind that 50% plus some of our population live in danger of domestic violence and sexual harassment in the workplace, on the streets and at, and at home. And the way in which events unfolded this week, not so much the week before, uh, uh, 
does not, I think, worries me enormously about the impact uh, for women and children of the character of those events. Uh, what do you think it was displaying male privilege? Well, I, I, I or think toxic ma- masculinity. Saw a lot of angry, violent young men, a number of them, as you pointed out, charged up with uh, alcohol uh, and possibly other crap as well. And so that's not good uh, for, you know, the public sort of uh, milieu is now... Um, we have we have a question about how, whether these events are going to shape um, the the safety, really. Oh, of, the public performance. Uh, I mean, it's a bit like uh, something I read this week on JASTA, which is uh, a really fascinating uh, web page about uh, that uh, highlights uh, academic research. And yeah. one of them was this discussion about uh, the uh, um, Little Red Riding Hood uh, motif and how uh, that Little Red Riding Hood motif is continued within the uh, discourse about uh, individual female uh, protection tactics. It's it's up to the individual woman to protect herself uh, by not going out at night or not going to, you know what I mean? Like it's the same trope that is actually developed in uh, Little Red Riding Hood. Yeah. So it's reinforcing it, really. Women's women's organisation want to be able to lead in public manifestations, demonstrations, public meetings, etc., etc., uh, to uh, advance their, uh, their understand their experience and what they want done about the issues of domestic violence and sexual harassment and how those two intersect with each other, uh, through, you know, our understanding of misogyny. But, of course... Most women's organisations that are champions of building better human relationships believe in the science of, uh, of, uh, of, of the pandemic. And therefore, they cannot do a lot of the things that are necessary to mount a public understanding uh, and determination to change the character of how people are relating to in Australian society these days. Oh, that's really interesting. So, I mean, I have this overwhelming view of these people as bullies. They're bullying everybody into opening up. They're bullying people into letting them uh, do a super spreader event. They're bullying everybody. I think we've got to nuance that a little bit more. And a, a good way to start doing it, I suspect, is to separate uh, the events of this week Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday in particular, uh, in which the organised buggery predominated with what went on the previous week and were probably the, you know, the sort of, for the opportunists amongst the leadership of the thugs um, to grab hold of. And that was, uh, I think it was um, yesterday, week ago. Oh, the tea party uh, on the well, street. The... the, the the lunchroom tables yeah. on the streets of the CBD. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, I, there was no consultation. It all happened really quickly. Well, uh, I think that was... A, I mean, I thought, what a creative tactic. Mm, that's right. Now, that that did not originate with the leaders of organised thuggery. No, 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 no. It came from... That, that originated in the thinking of construction workers 
about and their reaction to having a imposed autocratic form of uh, of a vaccination program with a deadline that said no vaccine, no work. That's right. In which there is well-established lack of consultation with them and their representatives in the construction division of the uh, CFMEU. It's so a class difference, like, isn't it? There's a real class a difference. difference. It's a big difference. And the challenge, I think, I mean, I was. it was so impressive, actually, that I thought, wow, could that be applied in response to the call of school students for adult solidarity on October 15th, which is the next day of action against climate change. Could that action be a part of the contribution of the construction uh, workers' union? By that, I mean not just the leadership of the union, but the membership of the union saying, well, we're going to do this. Now, of course, there are COVID restrictions to get in that, but I'm talking conceptually. Could that tactic be applied in solidarity with ambulance drivers, healthcare workers who are under enormous stress because of the pandemic and who are demanding much better conditions in which they can work in order to look after people who are ill to varying degrees because of COVID-19. Can it be applied to uh, the really puny demonstrations that happen every now and again in front of the Fair Work Commission in Exhibition Street um, in solidarity with low-income workers struggling to get a better living wage? That's, you see... That was where we were uh, before Monday rolled in. And I think that was a very interesting development and really um, something for us to... Because it's mindful militancy. Yeah, so what you're saying is the creative uh, response was then suborned by uh, uh, another political agenda, which was uh, a right-wing... They are right-wing fascists, basically. Uh, Yes, of course. Of course. Uh, I think that's what I am saying, yes. And I do that um, knowing that I'm, you know, I'm not in the thick of the action on a day. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like most of us, we can't be because we accept the science. And this yeah, is yeah, we're next... staying home because there's a pandemic. Yeah. Well, you see, this is where... Uh, you, uh, just think about this for a moment. Let's, uh, you know, if you... Monday happens, right? And so you've got this 500 or 600 thugs, a certain number of them drunk, um, I, I listened to um, a wonderful First Nations woman, woman confronting them, and God, they, they were they were so pathetic in response to her challenges. Yeah, and the uh, Aussie, the Aussie, Aussie, oi, 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 business, yeah. and then and also the um, Western civilization crap. Yes, yes, all that stuff. But nevertheless, you see, the problem for us on the left, people in the Life Campaign, or the secondary school students or in our unions is that we accept the science. We know enough about science because we've taken it seriously uh, and we have studied it in our own right. Or as someone said to me was, we believe in the science because we can read or we do read. I think that's a bit um, 
supercilious, actually. But, but, <laughs> Sorry, I, 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 be, I be chastised. Go on, someone else said that to me, so I just thought that was funny. That was a comedian said it, you see, a comedian did it. Oh, my, our family, our family do, uh, stays inside because, you know, we believe in the science because yeah, we, we read. Yeah, well, well we, re- we re- and we read critically. Yeah, and, yeah, I know, I'm just being rude. And not, and not obediently. Yeah, and, and some people and, find and reading see, difficult, so go on. Uh, you see, that flows into, therefore, uh, you know, the work of ambulance workers, paramedics, nurses, doctors, hospital cleaners, yeah. contact tracers. Yeah. These are all the people busting our guts, and it's all based on science, the development of scientific knowledge. Well, that's one of the things that we got right, you know. I mean, there's lots of things humans don't do very well, but that's one thing we do. We got right, you know. Well, to say is, is of course that capitalism uh, is contradictory. Of course, it generates multi crises, as we have at the moment. But also within its development, there is the the advancement of science for better and for worse. So it can produce the destructive power of nuclear weaponry and nuclear submarines. And at the same time, it can produce the profound efforts uh, of ambulance workers and nurses and so on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But we in the left, we've been prepared to sacrifice our means of, our normal means of political intervention. So consider this, Monday rolls around in normal circumstances. For those people who accept the science in normal circumstances, the next day, I have no doubt that the Victorian Trades Hall Council and the building industry unions could have put 3,000 disciplined, peaceful, but powerful construction workers in the streets to shut down the voices of the thuggery. Mm. But our belief in the science meant that we couldn't do it. The whole thing could have been over with a demonstration of democracy the very next day. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're completely right. What we could have achieved, the police didn't. What the police could not achieve. And I bet you, subterranean, there are more people in flame because of the confrontation with the police acting in the social interest, be it as they may, that is the police, but there are more people inflamed. So the police have not been able to roll it back. They've been able to push it underground and it will will come back again, regrettably. But we, through democratic, mindful militancy, could have poked it in the eye so powerfully that it wanders around even more blind than what it currently is. Well, we'll have to leave that's it there. That's a perfect. That's a perfect way to finish because we're right up to the wire. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, you you speak sense. Yes, and remember, everybody, there is a school strike for climate on October the fifteenth. Who knows what the character of the restrictions will be at that time? But let's make sure that it is that we respond to their call for solidarity and make it big and powerful in the circumstances that we have to deal with. And, Annie, there is so much more. 
I wish we could talk a little bit more about the uh, the deeply practical philosophic philosophic issues about freedom and individualism and individuality. I wish we could talk about. Well, that. all right, we'll do that next time. I'd love to do that. All right, that's all the, the best to everybody. That's a date, okay, Don. Talk to you later. Bye for now. Yeah, and that was Don Sutherland, and we really are up to the wire. Coming up next is uh, Asia Pacific Currents, uh, and uh, that's me for one more week. That's Annie. Keep safe, and we'll go out with a great song. It's a redoing of uh, Paul Kelly's Dumb Things. To my brothers down there in Dundale Dealing with that disaster That them guards are there and not jail Thinking we're getting that welfare, huh? Thinking we're getting that healthcare, huh? Think about if it was your son Now think about sending some help Damn, yeah What's dumber than that, mate? What's dumber than dressing up blackface? What's dumber than doing it Knowing that hurts And don't even work to make that change Let's go! In the middle In the middle In the middle of a dream I lost my shit Of a racist, don't you dare complain. That's what's leading your nation. Send in the clowns, they're black faces. They're looking at couples, they're looking at brothers, but they ain't leaving the station. The date's changing. In the middle, in the middle, in the middle of the dream. I lost my shirt, I Gentlemen on the keys and drums, Mr. John, Mr. Paul Bartlett, aka 64. On the guitar, my brother Dan Sullivan. And to my right, Mr. Paul Kelly. Lumped in, looking for peace but won't find it They holding us back from closing the gap By keeping them close-minded See, no surprises there Hearing both of them sirens blare Them coppers where I'm from are kind of fair If you kind of fair What's a world commission? To the ones who live on a mission To the ones who's killed by the system For the ones that's meant to assist them At the hands of policemen Who's gonna police them? They're killing us police, they got it on footage They need to release them
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.